right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is episode number 287. With that number, we'll give a shout out to Christine Lilly, who scored her 100th international goal in her 287th cap back in 2004, fall 2004 versus New Zealand. She retired a little more than six years later with 130 goals and a world record 354 caps to her credit. Okay, two chats today, um, a belated chat about the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit update, of course, since I recorded this great chat with Kelsey Trainer of Equalizer Soccer. Uh, there's been even more updates, so I highly recommend following Kelsey Trainer on Twitter. Read her coverage on EqualizerSoccer.com. There's also... Uh, usually solid reporting from Bo Durer on uh, Soccer America. Um, lots of good stuff out there. I know it might seem shocking uh, that in some respects we can say that they lost part of this lawsuit, but keep in mind that uh, there's a lot of nitpicking legal details involved and this case is far, far from over. But I really enjoyed talking with Kelsey Trainer. I thought she did a really great job um, making some of these concepts a little bit more accessible to those of us without a law degree. And then I had a great chat with Coach G. Guerreri from Texas A&M. He's been head coach there for about 25 years. Uh, just wanted to get a sense, you know, what is it like being a college coach right now? You know, you don't see your players, you can't recruit, you don't want, don't know what's going to happen for the fall. And I also spoke with Coach G about the Aggie alums who have been playing in NWSL and, of course, also 2020 draftee Allie Watt, who has not yet played in NWSL but has already snuck in a W League championship playing with with uh, Melbourne City. I almost said Sydney, but Melbourne City this year. And in between these two chats, of course, is my recurring segment called Gensplaining. This week, I talk about what is an international goal and what's not an international goal. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at KeeperNotes and at MixZone. That's two X's in MixZone. And as always, appreciate any time you can share this podcast with other soccer fans. All right. Two chats coming up. Enjoy. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Kelsey Trainer, sports writer, entertainment lawyer extraordinaire. Um, how about that for an intro, Kelsey? I love it. Take it. <laughs> also, and writer, we should say, for Equalizer Soccer. Kelsey, of course, bringing on uh, to discuss the latest update with the U.S. Women's National Team gender discrimination suit. We had a judgment come out last Friday. And Kelsey, I love your explanation to me of why it happened suddenly Friday. I hadn't even thought about this and I should have thought about this. It's like, wait, it just suddenly came out on a Friday afternoon. And, and your explanation was, of course. Yeah. Listen, I used to clerk and if you had a decision that was going to be controversial or if there was uh, basically any phone calls or emails you didn't feel like dealing with after the fact, you put it out as late as possible on a Friday. So you didn't have to deal with it till Monday. (laughs) I mean, I am guilty. I'm just saying I've done it before, so I get it. And as the clerk, you know, and the judge, just set it and forget it, basically. Uh, yeah, so all those those poor national soccer media that had to jump in on, uh, on that, you know, Friday afternoon, Friday night and get something out as opposed to, you know, my leisurely uh, podcast style of like, okay, let me let, let's think in, let me read some coverage, let me think about this. Because, you know, it was sudden right like we we knew that the trial had been pushed back a month because of uh you know the, the the shutdown um i think we all thought following everything that happened in march with uh u.s soccer's horrible statements cordero stepping down etc that maybe this was on the road to possible settlement um but this was clearly a a, a different direction so Correct me if I'm wrong, but so he's the judge set aside or rather ruled in favor of U.S. soccer on two of the main three points, right? 
Yeah, essentially. So the judge, there's there's actually two claims. One of them was okay. for the Equal Pay Act, and that was that there's a pay disparity between the women and the men. And the other one is for uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Now, under Title VII, they had kind of these subclaims, which was for playing conditions, the turf, travel and accommodations, uh, the personnel provided for teams, and also compensation. So essentially what the judge did was he dismissed the entire Equal Pay Act claim. So in terms of everyone kind of shouting equal pay, equal pay, that part of it has been dismissed. He also dismissed the compensation aspect of the Title VII claim, which is basically gender discrimination. Um, and he dismissed the, uh, the the issues with differences in playing services. So the only two things that remain are this Title VII claim relating to travel and accommodations um, and the personnel provided to the teams. Now, before we get into the the really meaty stuff, like that that one claim remaining, that or the, those two small claims remaining, those are pretty important. Yeah, and I, I think it's taken me personally like a, a few minutes to to realize that because all the headlines, you know, were saying equal pay cases dismissed, right? Um, and kind of minimizing these things, the travel and accommodations, the the player, the personnel is provided to the team. But when you really think about it, like these are these quality of life things are so important, right? Like, you know, the difference between playing a World Cup game and having a hotel room to yourself versus sleeping in a hotel room with three other people. Um, You know, your ability to have comfort and travel. Are you traveling kind of cramped on a flight with, with, you know, a hundred other people? Or do you have a charter flight and, you know, your ability to stretch in between games and stuff like that? So it's not... It, it's not something to write off, at least in my opinion. Yeah, there's there's so much there that we've heard about in the past. And, you know, some of the disparities, um, you know, charter flight versus commercial flight, um, you know, level of hotels, where the hotels are, um, even, you know, medical personnel, how many, you know, people they're, that, they're, that they're traveling with. Um, and what I always find interesting is that historically – um, the U.S. women have been ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, having extra staff. Like I remember uh, the psychologists that they hired starting with the 96 Olympics, you know, finding that extra edge. And, you know, as much as they've enjoyed that stuff, and I, and I think sometimes U.S. soccer says, look, we've always been ahead of the curve. It's like only because the U.S. women fought for it. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, like it was Tony DeChico back in 1996 who forced U.S. soccer saying, no, you want us to win? We need this sports psychologist. Um, and it, it's fascinating that, you know, almost 25 years later, it's still it's still that fight like this, this, you know, this winning stuff doesn't just happen, you know, in a vacuum. Exactly. But but back to the the, the big two you know, I guess the big resounding nose from the judge, you know, so explain first the, the gender discrimination, just the, the, the that, claims. That yeah. Part. yeah. So, so the equal, under the equal pay act, like you have to basically prove that the women performed substantially equal work to the men and then were paid less. So what the equal pay act does is it considers wages. Now the judge goes through a lengthy definition of, of what, is considered wages. And at the end of the day, he says it's total compensation. Now, what does total compensation consider? That's everything, not just, you know, money that is paid out to you, but fringe benefits. So severance, maternity leave, um, all those extra things. And he says at the end of the day, the, well, he says two major points. He says, one, the men and the women have these collective bargaining agreements that are structured so differently that you can't really compare them under the law for this case. And he also says that in the alternative, if you do compare them um, and you kind of look back to how much the women made versus the men over this four-year period, because remember, this lawsuit is only covering from 2015 to 2019. That is the class that has been certified for this case. And he says at the end of the day, the women made on average more per game than the men. So they made 221,000 per game compared to the men making 213,000 per game. Um, and what he doesn't consider, which the the women, the U.S. women's national team argued, is that the only reason that the women made more money in that time period is because they won. Right. You know? they, they, they won the, um, 
other than, you know, those two games in the Olympics they didn't get to play, they won everything they could possibly win. The 2015 World Cup, the 2019 World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what the judge, I mean, he, he, he addresses it. He says, you know, cool, great. I get that argument. But at the end of the day, the women still bargain for this contract and the men bargain for this one. And at the end of the day, you can't come back now and say that you don't want this. You had guarantees in your contract. You know, the men had, uh, lower, uh, guarantees with, uh, larger, uh, based performance bonuses. And so, you know, you get what you get basically. And I know you're not necessarily going to be um, in the know about this, but we've heard uh, R- Rapino say it's like, no, we weren't offered that. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, yeah. So, so that's what the, they've come out and said the, the players and, and that they, this hasn't been offered. And I also think too, like if you look at, the their positioning in negotiation. I think Jamie McManus said it best when in an article um, on for USA Today, and it was like compared it to the Scotty Pippen in the Last Dance and his negotiation stance going in towards the end of his contract. You know, he took that contract that he had early on in his career because he had two people at home that were disabled. You know, he wanted this longer guarantee because he really wasn't sure because he was not in the position uh, to to be able to demand more. Um, and women, obviously, historically, in spite of their success, because of the lack of investment and because of the lack of coverage and support uh, uh, from, you know, international soccer as a whole, they haven't been in that position. And so when the women negotiated this contract, it was, they were at the point where, like, this is the best that they could get at the time. Um, and so I think it's, it's a really interesting scenario because the judge doesn't look at that, but it's something that can be considered like that the equal pay act and that these laws against gender discrimination and pay, you know, should take into account the disparity between the sides at the negotiating table. Yeah. And, and I feel like he missed a little bit of the historical context of, um, you know, one of the reasons that for 25 years the, the players have been fighting for that stability, perhaps, and in, in, instead of the okay, no contract but bigger payout, is because there weren't paid leads for them to play in. Uh, exactly. I mean, the, the first time I talked to Julie Fowdy a few years ago, and and. I was like, I have to ask you, you know, like when you were first negotiating back in 1995, you know, was this what you thought would happen? You know, and she's like, we were just trying to make sure we were getting paid when we were called into camp. Exactly. Like, like there, if, if you go back into the Soccer America archives and, and Google this stuff, you find that like their complaints were the simple, I got called into camp for two weeks and didn't get paid, period. Right. So they were yeah. just, you know, starting out with the, hey, if we're called in, we get paid. If, if you know, if we do well, we get, you know, a, a bonus. Um, you know, I think they were getting a thousand dollars a month, you know, for the 91 World Cup. And, you know, FIFA didn't even have bonus money then. But but yeah, I, I think there's the, the historical context missing of. Uh, you know, what, what was available now, of course, in the, in the class period for, for this court case, that entire period, there was the NWSL, right? right. Um, so, so I think it, it, it kind of misses, I, I think it'd be easy for the, the judge to miss that. It's like, there's such a long history of this team existing without anywhere else for them to play or make money from playing. Exactly. I mean, it's, he didn't, he didn't necessarily address the, like you're talking about the history in, in the bargaining process. Um, and, you know, talked about this before, but like, you know, you can understand to an extent that like that you contract for something. If you look to a lot of these NFL players or, or these other collective bargaining agreements is like, you know, you essentially can contract away almost anything, even things that are pretty morally reprehensible. You can contract them away. And if you do it, you're bound by it. Um, but you know, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people, the idea of that. And it, it also, you know, doesn't take into account that there are laws in place to prevent those types of things happening on a basis of gender. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that that makes me think of um, I've seen some people say, oh, the, the players should have 
should have gone on strike. It's like, no, they specifically agreed to no strike slash no lockout by U.S. soccer in their CBA because they were smart enough to realize, like, if we don't play, you know, we risk losing, um, you know, public backing. But also, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize is that Say say they didn't play in the 2016 Olympics. Say they boycotted that. Um, they would risk U.S. soccer, not just the women, but the entire U.S. soccer program getting banned from major tournaments from an extended period of time. That's the last thing you want, right? Right. <laughs> like, like, so it's, it's, it, when you look at this, like it history repeats itself, right? But hopefully every time it does, you you make a little bit of progress. And so when you look at the history of the negotiations and you look at the success of the team, it's only, you know, gotten bigger. Uh, The players, the personalities, they've only gotten larger. And so it's kind of this same pattern of like, okay, the women are going to play. They're going to win. They're going to come out and have uh, more demands. Well, U.S. soccer, whoever's in charge is not going to meet all of those. And so the women take what they can get. And then they're going to go and they're going to keep winning and they're going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And then we're at the next stage. Well, all right, now they're demanding more. And now there's more pressure on U.S. soccer. And I think that we're finally at the point, right? Like if you look into the 2021 when the, uh, the, this current CBA is up, do not think that these players are going to go in there unless, you know, something it kind of is done before them. But they're going to go in there with such bargaining power, you know, because without the women, U.S. women's national team, there really isn't, you know, a whole lot to U.S. soccer right now because the men's team's not doing anything. They don't win. Um, and so, you know, history repeats itself. And it's, you know, when the decision came down by the judge on Friday, it did feel like a blow. It did feel like this you know, massive kind of, I don't know, we were on this, had all this momentum and this wave and the wave just crashed. That's definitely what it felt like. Um, But I think, you know, I think we're still on the trend of the women getting uh, at least very close to to what they actually deserve. And I think it's easy, um, just like the coverage, you know, starting out with this lawsuit was equal pay, equal pay, that with the judgment dropping Friday, it was easy. People go, oh, the women lost. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, you know, that th- that's that's clickbait, right? That's the right. easy headline. That is the bigger part of it. But the story's not over. Um, like we mentioned before, the the fight for personnel accommodations, that kind of support is is key. And and I like that you're pointing out that when they do end up renegotiating or, you know, negotiating for the next CBA, that that they do have some some power, because I think a, a lot of a lot of what I've read recently is like, OK, you know, now their their hand is weaker. It's like, well, that might be true if, if they were negotiating right now. Right. 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 But, and like in the court of law, like their case is weaker. That that's that's a fact, right? At the court, right. In the court of law, their case is weaker. The the amount of money they can technically win under the law is definitely weaker. Uh, but U.S. soccer is still facing this, you know, insanely horrible uh, outward PR crisis. You know, they, right? They don't look good. Um, and the U.S. women's national team is still beloved, and you know their sponsorships and their, their, the players are still coveted um, and they're still winning, you know, at least hopefully when soccer resumes, they'll continue to win. Um, so you kind of have all those things still going for them. So while the case in the court of law is not necessarily, you know, as strong, they're still in a pretty good position uh, to, to bargain for um, a new collective bargaining agreement. Now, do you think um, the trial still proceeds in in June, whatever date it's set for? Do you think we could see something happen between now and then? I mean, I think there's going to be settlement talks. I don't know if they'll come to a a resolution before then, because that seems awfully close. Um, You know, oftentimes what happens is if the parties are in settlement negotiations, um, you know, they'll submit to the court to postpone trial because they're trying to work it out. You know, at the end of the day... The least amount of court resources we can use, the better. Um, and also, you know, due to coronavirus, like courts are continuing. I believe the Central District of California, where the case is, you know, their original court was closed until May 1st. Well, now it's been extended that the courthouse is closed until June 1st. Uh, and this trial is scheduled as of right now for June 16th. Um, and so I, I really don't know that it happens then. It really just depends on the judge and 
kind of the court schedule. Um, but I, you know, I do think there is a possibility that, that it does go to trial. Um, but it's kind of like anything else at this point. It's, it's a toss up of what the sides are going to do. Well, and of course we're in this really weird pause position, right? <laughs> you know, so it's like no Olympics right now, no league for the men or women, no games for the men or women. Um, you know, does that affect anything or no? You know, it's hard to say. I, I don't have a I don't have a um a strong kind of opinion on this either way. Um, you know, maybe it would if they the women were playing during this time and they were losing, <laughs> it would affect something. But you know, that's not gonna happen. Um and you know, I think they're still in this position that is pretty powerful. I mean, in terms of finances, I think the money is dwindling. Um, and you know, you're not going to have as many sponsors and you're not going to have as many advertising dollars because that has dropped across the board in all sections of business. Right. Um, so money wise, you know, that might be an issue, but in terms of them, not, it's not, I don't think it has anything to do with the women not playing. I just think it's, you know, the situation, the economy and everything. Yeah. And you know, when historically we've seen that, uh, you know, U.S. soccer makes money when the women are playing, you know, so it's like, you know, they didn't have the two games in April. Uh, it's doubtful, you know, they'll have games uh, in, 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 the, in the near future. Um, you know, one of the things that I like that the, the U.S. women fought for in the last negotiation of the CBA was fewer games in terms of victory tours, right? Like... 2012 Olympics, they did a 10 game victory tour, 2015 women's world cup, 10 game victory tour where it got to, they're playing four games in, in December at the end of a very long year, you know, yeah. tired. that's when Rapino got injured, right? People like tried to say, Oh, it was about the turf. No, she wasn't actually playing on turf when she got injured. Right. Um, so I like that they fought for the, this past cycle even though they won the 2019 Women's World Cup, they had only yeah. negotiated for four victory tour matches. One was added that they agreed to, but but their season ended for them in early November and they contracted to get December off, right? So it's it's like, no, you can't keep wearing us down and using, you know, like... So it, it's like, like you're saying, it's like each each cycle we're, we're seeing... Uh, some progress, right? That it's coming in waves. Right. And that, I mean, you can historically look at anything that, you know, especially having to do with women's rights, you know, and it's always the, the, it's always kind of the thinking of that, like women should just be happy to be in the position that they're in, you know, that we should, here's breadcrumbs and you should be happy with that. When you can look to, you know, tennis and even the, the recent WNBA's collective bargaining agreement, you know, look at what they accomplished with that. Um, you know, maybe a few years down the line, the money that's involved there is not going to seem so substantial, but compared to what they had before, like that's kind of always the basis is this comparison to what it was before, not necessarily, not necessarily the value of their worth and the, you know, the amount that they win and how talented they are. Well, and, and I've heard it, uh, you know, from U.S. soccer off and on over the years. It's like, hey, but you're the best paid women's national team right. in the world. It's, and and that's true. And at the same time, it's like only because they've fought you for it. Right. <laughs> so how I mean, how do they deal with that? argument. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the kind of thing that would come up in court. No, I mean, you can't argue that because one, I mean, like when you look at just women historically, like, you know, it wasn't super long ago that women were considered property. And then if you look at like some places where, you know, women are just now allowed to actually view a a football slash soccer game, right. They're just now allowed in the stadium. So it's like, if that's your standard, you know, you really don't kind of have a, a leg to stand on there because there's, you know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you mentioned uh, before we started taping that uh, you've even been on, you know, news coverage in South Africa talking about this, right? And that's that's fascinating that there's 
um, you know, kind of the world interest in it reminds me of last summer. I actually did some some work on Turkish TV. They wanted oh, to wow. talk about a, a lot of stuff in the U.S. post Women's World Cup, and it just it stunned me. But it's like, wow, this is reaching beyond uh, the normal the normal it, media. It's huge, and you know, I'll say like for this past or you know end of 2019, I was on the BBC talking about women's basketball, which is not necessarily heard of. Um, you know, I was on South Africa's radio sports FM radio uh, this week talking about it, and you know, the, the you know the host, his perception is like listen, the women have won four World Cups. Uh, They have four (laughs) trophies and the men don't win at all. Like what more do they need to do to be paid? He he literally said it's an embarrassment. He, he, I think the quote is like us soccer is an embarrassment, like based on this. Um, and you know, whether or not that deals with the intricacies of the actual lawsuit, that is the public perception internationally, apparently. Um, and so that's what us soccer is facing. Well, I also kind of laugh when I read comments. And of course, this is why you shouldn't read comments, you know, on a a lot of web posts. Yeah, don't read the comments comments. where they're like, well, the women are, you know, women, not not the U.S. women, but women aren't as skilled or, you know, once the women scrimmage the U15 boys team, you know, it's it's just like to me, it's like it's that's irrelevant. That's not what's at play. Right. It's so irrelevant. And guess what? Like, Cool. Great. Great point you made. Doesn't matter because under the law, the only thing that uh, that the law essentially recognizes as a difference between men and women in terms of paying them is that women can have babies and men can't. And that's the only thing under the law where you can really have this nuanced like take on paying men and women differently if the job requires it. Other right. than that, physical strength, speed, like none of it matters. Um, and so that's what people like don't understand. Um, it's like, you can't sit there and say that, you know, by birth women, uh, are inferior and therefore should be paid less, which is the argument the U S soccer came out with. Um, because, you know, you're talking about strength and speed and skill, but you know, what you're not talking about is actually winning games, which the women yeah. do and the men don't, uh, you know, it's convenient to kind of leave that out. So... <laughs> <laughs> So if you're if you're a U.S. soccer right now, if you're Cindy Parlacone or Will Wilson, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, just in the last six weeks, right, like new management for U.S. soccer, a new CEO, a new president. Um, what do you do going forward with this this news? I mean, they've got to continue on the trend of, of kind of repairing the relationship. I think that's the only way forward for U.S. soccer. Um, and I, I'm thinking they realize that. I mean, I think their press release after this decision came down had a different tone than any of the other statements I've seen you know, before. And it was right. basically like the women are the best team in the world. Uh, we've, we've seen the results. We look forward to getting to the table and negotiating between them. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for for sharing your insight and and helping explain some of these concepts because um, it is it's so much right. There, there's a lot of paperwork related to this, and I've seen a lot of news stories where they're like, "Here's the link if you want to read the whole lawsuit." It's like, oh my right. god, no. <laughs> yeah, break it no, down for me. No, you don't want to. And, and I think something else that we were talking about before that I really just wanted to kind of harp on, harp on is that. This is the perfect storm for this uh, for this lawsuit, right? You have the laws of the United States of America is one thing that you know you don't have these laws that exist elsewhere. You don't have these equal pay um, uh, things kind of institutionalized. So you've got that. You've got the fact that the U.S. women's national team is exponentially better than the men's team, and the results show you that. And then three, you have these players with these personalities that are international. Um, And so it's this perfect storm where, you know, it's kind of the only time and place, I think, where you could have a lawsuit like this that has such uh, an importance, uh, not just for the players themselves, but for women everywhere. Um, and I think that's what the, the Friday's, you know, summary judgment ruling came down as this blow. And I, you know, I myself immediately felt that. And then reading through it, um, understanding kind of where we go next, it's not quite as bad as the headline suggests. 
Well, and, and I'm glad you brought this up of, you know, what it what what it rep- represents internationally, because I would hazard a guess that for, um, you know, other women's national teams, depending on what their negotiation negotiating situation is that this could be something that they could turn to in the future and go, look, the U.S. women got this. Here's the gold standard. Like, exactly. You, you, you want us to be competitive, you know, in Europe? Here, you want us to be competitive the, here? Here's like, the blueprint. Well, yeah. and I think that's exactly what the judge did in this case. And, you know, people can agree or disagree, but the judge laid out a blueprint of going forward what you need to do, right? Like, you want to have the collective bargaining agreements, you want them to be able to be compared under the law, here's how to compare them, make them similar. Uh, And then in that case, there's another lawsuit you can bring, because if they're not, then we have a collective bargaining agreement that can be uh, compared. And if one's not equal to the other, there you go. And and I think that he he did that in this, in this, uh, his 32 page opinion in order, he essentially laid out a blueprint of what to do going forward to, uh, to have a case like this be successful. Well, so in other words, you're saying that we're going to see this go on for years and years. No, 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 no. <laughs> if. <laughs> I'm saying if, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I think settlement is, is a good for the short term. But, you know, if you want to run this thing long term for years and years and years and years and have a result that is precedential, not just for um, uh, the soccer, the players, but for kind of the wall itself and how it's interpreted, um, you know, it, it is a blueprint. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if it does, if they don't settle and it, it goes to trial and they appeal it, you know, the ninth circuit could get a hold of it and say, no, you messed up and create entirely different law around it. It's a very, you know, it's a real possibility. Well, like I said, thank you so much for for taking the time to 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 talk and explain and clarify. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Time for a little gen explaining. Today's topic: definition of an international goal. You know, it seems pretty obvious, but I have found um, it's not as obvious as you may think. And I have found a lot of stats that kind of confuse what's an international goal and what's not an international goal. All right. So first, the obvious part, um, you have to be playing an international match for it to be a national goal. Uh, to a, For a goal to count towards your official international goal total, it has to be national team versus national team. So say the U.S. women's national team plays a friendly against, say, Chelsea FC, right? None of the goals in that competition would count towards the national team player's official goal count. Um, Similarly, uh, your national team goal total, uh, they separate senior goals from any goals you score if you're playing for the U-17s, the U-20s, the U-23s. Those do not count towards your international goal total. So you look back, 2008, under-20 Women's World Cup, Alex Morgan scored a lot of goals, Sidney LaRue scored a lot of goals. None of those goals count towards their international goal total. So when Alex Morgan hit 100 international goals, last April that was 100 international goals for the senior national team of the USA against other senior national teams. We've even seen some games, um, some tournaments, like uh, it used to be the Pan Am games. The U.S. would send the U-20 teams. Other countries would send their senior teams. So it's sometimes in dispute uh, if those senior teams scoring against the U-20s, that those would count as international goals. This is why, as someone who's had to track international goals, I found that there's a lot of question about some of Marta's goal totals Not that she still doesn't have a ridiculously uh, large number of goals, but there have been counts of her goal totals that have included her U-20 Women's World Cup goals, U-19 Women's World Cup goals, U-20 team goals scored against a senior team, or Brazil goals scored against a club. So bottom line, your international goals, it's goals you score for your senior national team against other senior national teams, completely separate from your club goal totals, your college goal totals, your youth career totals. All right. Hope that's helpful. 
All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Coach G. Guerreri from Texas A&M. Coach, what, what has it been like on campus? I mean, this must be the most strange, strangest time you've ever had on a college campus. Well, it kind of is. Um, you know, as we speak today, uh, was supposed to be graduation day for a lot of uh, a lot of Aggies, and you know, it's I wouldn't say it's a ghost town. Now that Governor Abbott has opened the state up a little bit, you know, I saw more traffic um, in town yesterday than I've seen in you know since since before spring break. But it's uh, you know, it's pretty peaceful. It's it's easy to it's easy to get around right now, and I've been doing a, I, I do a lot of um, walks, uh, sometimes morning walks, oftentimes late afternoon walks, and you know I've been kind of focusing on walking around the part of town near you know on campus and around, and it's just me and a bunch of squirrels. You know, it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty wild. So, how did kind of the the lockdown, quarantine, however we want to call it, how did that change? the rest of your spring schedule um had you guys finished your your spring games or what did it mean for aggie soccer well we had um we had already played a few games uh we played against you know the haitian national team we played against lamar and then um we were we were we'd gone through training we were going to go you know we went to spring break and you know the players haven't come back basically, but um, after spring break, we were going to have a, a couple more games, but it, you know, we didn't lose that much. It, the, the thing that w- was unfortunate for us was this is, this was a, a big transition spring for us because we graduated a, a reasonably large senior class um, with, a, with a couple real impact players. And so kind of, we were really turning the corner on a lot of issues with leadership and new new people in in bigger roles and chemistry we're just working on chemistry all the time and all that and and that was going i mean that was going great and we were playing really well what better than you know i thought we were going to be playing and uh and bang it's over so um so the good news is we finished on a really good note you know we still you know are our meeting with the team and the players uh, through Zoom and other other means all the time, and we try to stay as in contact with them as we can. But but they're they are literally stretched from you know from coast to coast, from Canada to Mexico. I mean, they are all over North America right now. And you know, there's a, there's a handful that are here in town, and there's a you know there's a lot of them that that are basically just kind of waiting. And the first question on all of them is. When can we come back? When can we come back you know, to and, and get on? And I'm sure the parents by now are probably saying, "When are you going back?" That would be, you know, I'll be okay because it's, you know, the first month I have a, a college age son, and you know, it's it's been great to have him around. I, I look at it as a it's a bonus that I wouldn't have been around them that much, but I know for him, it's just he's climbing the walls, and I and I know my girls are climbing the walls too. Yeah. And then how, how does this affect recruiting? I mean, I don't know how much recruiting trips you guys make in the spring, but I'm sure you make a lot in the summer and, and, and then you have players coming in the fall. So how does that affect the recruiting process? Well, it, it, it hasn't been great. I mean, I was, uh, my, I had my, my April planned out. I was going to be gone 24 of the 30 days of April, um, just getting out and, you know, kind of, you know, making, you know, touching base at different places, of course, all around the state of Texas. But I mean, I was going to be through the Midwest and to the West Coast and, you know, just kind of, you know, strengthening our, our recruiting pipelines and, and our bonds. And boom, I'm home for 30 days in uh, in April. And summertime is a, is a really busy time for us here. We've got, you know, we've got our camps. Um, which have been canceled uh, because the SEC unilaterally canceled all camps across all 12 states. Um, so I was like, okay, well, cool. Well, now I can get out and I can I can recruit even more. I can I can still do the things I need to do. But but you know, U.S. club soccer has they've stopped all training right now through May 18. Um, they've canceled their national events, their regional events. Same thing with USYS. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, the girls DA went, went belly up. So it, it is an, a completely unusual year. I've never had a summer off 
I mean, <laughs> never. Uh, you know, 30, yeah. 30, 30 years of 35 years of coaching in college, and I've never had a summer like this. And, you know, I've always been like, oh, man, I would love to go to the World Cup this summer. I would love to go to the Euros. I would love to fill in the blank. And, um, you know, so I was saying to my wife, I was like, you know, this is actually the first time that, I mean, we could actually maybe, if they open, we could actually go to Yellowstone or go to some of these places that we've, you know, that we've always kind of said, well, someday maybe we'll do that. Well, maybe that's this year. I, I don't know if uh, if travel restrictions are, are lifted and if you can't get a uh, get COVID-19 from a Buffalo, maybe we'll, uh, we'll go up and try something like that out. But right now it, it is such uncharted waters that um, it's... Yeah, and you really can't plan. It, this is the hardest thing for me because I'm a, you know, I, I like organization, I like structure, and I like planning and, and laying things out and making, kind of creating that path that we're going to follow. Well, there, there's more, there's more questions than there are answers right now, and so every day is kind of a, you know, we try to take another step and we try to take another step, but there's still, um, for example, with college soccer. The big question is when is the start date and when can the kids come back on campus? And you know, we're making plans for certain dates, but we can't, you know, we, we, we're not sending out invitations for those dates because we haven't gotten the, we haven't gotten the, uh, the thumbs up from people above my pay grade. Yeah. Everything's, everything has an asterisk. Everything is, is tentative. Right. You know, right. And, and those returning so players, things- like, uh, you know, your players who aren't graduating, you know, what do they do? Um, you know, I would think normally a lot of them would play in the WPSL, which has been canceled uh, for this summer. How do they, you know, stay fit? What it, what plans do they come up with instead? Well, they, we, we send them, you know, they have, they have a full workout program, which they always have every summer. And, um, and actually a lot of our, traditionally a lot of uh, the A&M players haven't necessarily played in some of the leagues or so many of the leagues around the uh, state and around the country because it, summer is often the time when they're, when they're getting ahead on, on summer school. And mm. um, so, you know, with summer classes often being here, uh, they would come and they would work, they would work and then they would play, you know, every night there'd be a different pickup game with, with them and with guys and with, you know, basically playing against men is, is the way that they would train o- over the summer. Well, the facilities are closed and, um, you know, you, you, that's a little bit out of it. So right now it's, you know, we're trying to keep, uh, just kind of keep busy and, you know, they're, they're out working on their own and they're working with, you know, the, I've got, for example, players in Oklahoma who are working with, you know, their old uh, youth coaches are, are training them. Same thing in California. Same thing, you know, in different pockets of Texas is that they're now that they can go out in smaller groups, at least they can get back with some of the the people that they're comfortable with and they can start working with them. But we're, we're still not in a we're, we're still, not, still not able to do anything with them. We're not. We've never been able to have any kind of summer access as far as running a training session with them all we can do is give them ideas and it's it's purely voluntary but but that's you know if you're if you're a player for texas a&m you know soccer is in is in your soul and you are playing you're playing and thinking about it all the time and so uh lots of youtube uh ideas and you know they're sending they're sending trick videos back to us to put up on social media (laughs) they've got challenges going you know they've got their their text group within the uh within the team that is you know they're challenging each other and doing kind of trying to do some fun stuff so all of that is to kind of get through the monotony of days but also try to keep it to where you're not in neutral You're, you're trying to move forward and that's uh, and that's I just think such a big challenge, right? Like uh, it's fun, like you were saying, it's it's fun at the beginning because it's new and it's a break. But then, you know, how do you keep that momentum going? Exactly, exactly. Like I said, the first question is when can we come back? When you know what is what's happening? And you know, I'm on I'm on a couple national committees that are the discussion is all about the return to play for the NCAA. 
Um, and obviously they're keeping their eye on what's going on with MLS. Um, you know, what is MLS doing in regard to, uh, daily testing and monitoring of players and how are they keeping facilities, um, you know, as clean as possible? How often are they cleaning? You know, what happens between training sessions? All the, all those little things that we've kind of always just kind of taken for granted. Um, we're having to reinvent all of a sudden. So it, that's slowing down some of the process as well, because even when the, uh, what the NCAA has told us is, we are going to play. We're going to have a season. Um, we're going to stay optimistic that something like this is going to happen, at least with us being a fall season. The idea is we're going to, we're, we're, we're ideas. We're going to have our championship on December 6th in Cary, North Carolina. And we're going to try to work towards that date. And if there's delays, then we could think about pushing it back a little bit. But more than anything, that is the plan is that we want to try to get that. And so our first question again is, okay, well, when can we come back? When is, when is day <laughs> one? And, uh, and that's, that's the moving target right now because, um, I think the NCAA, it, it's funny because this is the year where we're probably looking at a, a probable shortened season in some form or fashion. Um, and we've always had a really tight window for our preseason. We've always had about 16 days, 21 practice opportunities in 16 right. days. Um, and we've always said, well, it'd be, it'd be nice if we could stretch the season out and get more time between games, all this kind of stuff. Well, this year they're talking about, you know, just trying to get the season in and make it meaningful. And, you know, we probably should do a four to nine week preseason. And we're like, okay, well, that sounds great. But... <laughs> let's not take nine weeks out of the season, you know, and create a three week season to have nine weeks of preparation for three weeks, you know, of our usual 12 weeks season. So that's, again, those are the big, those are some of the big question marks is can this acclimation period start um, when, when our players are working out with our strength and conditioning coaches, even before they come back to me, can that acclimation start then, or does the clock start, when I step on the field with them, um, and then they and then they kind of resocialize and and readjust to to playing at speed and you know contact and all that stuff. So those are those are the big questions right now. And I think the same thing will happen with NWSL and MLS and everything else. Even talking about starting workouts again, you know, there's still limited numbers and there's still no real circled start date of when you know, the show gets started. And, and I think a lot of it is it's, it's, it's fair to say that we could be going through some of this with the equivalent of a lightning delay that it's start, pause, start, pause, you know, okay, now we go back to right. pause again. So it's, it, it, I think we just have to kind of try to keep an even keel and try to stay positive and um, know that we are, we're trying to do the right things for, our players and their families, but also for people who love the game. And you know, it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, the Bundesliga and the premier league are, you know, talking about, you know, coming back. And I think that that's as much about the mental health of Germans and, and English fans that they need some sort of regularity to, to what's going on. And, you know, how can we do that safely and help out, by getting football back into people's lives. Well, and and speaking of positive, why don't we why don't we talk about some of the positives coming out of the the A and M program? Like 2020 draftee Allie Watt, she was able to sneak in a W League championship right before Australia shut things down, and they were one of the last to to shut down soccer. So so talk about her potential in NWSL, and and also that decision to to jump down to Australia and get that that half season in. Yeah, uh, you know, really, we're obviously we're super excited for her because she's worked really hard to get here. She is, she has developed so much in her time with us um, as a player and as a student of the game. I mean, she's always she's always come in as being this lightning bolt and you know the fastest player in in the NCAA without question. Um, but 
honing in her her technical ability, making her more functional to use that, making her more than just a a 15-minute lightning bolt and getting her to more of a 90-minute player. All those things really came to play into play for her and uh, for her to be drafted in the first round by by the champions number one and uh, and then you know it was her man her um, agent was was the one who got her set up with uh, Melbourne City down in Australia to kind of get a little bit of speed of play in prior to coming back to to uh, the courage and you know, initially, I thought I think she was even going to miss a little bit of the preseason for the courage, which didn't have us very happy that she would get drafted and not be there with them. Right. But look how things worked out. She was able to go down, be part of a team that won won the championship in Australia, uh, get some really good experience, make some good contacts, when, and and a, a great lifetime experience. And now, uh, as soon as it's go, she'll. Uh, She'll report to North Carolina with um, with Paul and uh, I remember talking to uh, Anson on uh, draft day and he's like he's like oh my god he goes the fastest team in the league just got faster he goes how can that <laughs> how can that be and uh, I was like yeah I go it's it's gonna be a, it's a scary it, it's a potentially really scary attack when you you look at what they have and and now you throw Allie on top of that. And then let's talk about uh, Jimena Lopez. Uh, you know, she, she's got, what, one more year with you in College Correct. Station. She's, you know, bit by bit made more of a name for herself on the Mexican national team moving up, you know, U-17s, U-20s. Now she's been capped uh, over the last year a few times for the senior team. You know, has she considered making an early jump to Liga Mex or she wants to finish out college career? Well, her- her plan is, I was just talking with her yesterday. Um, her plan is that she will, you know, play her senior year this fall. She's going to graduate in December and she'll, she'll make the jump to, uh, to the pros, uh, immediately following that. Um, whether it's in, uh, Liga Anexia or it's in NWSL or, you know, or for, for Europe, you know, playing in Spain or playing, you know, in, in any of the big leagues over there. I mean, she's, she is awesome. I mean, if I could clone her, obviously we'd like to clone her because she's, you know, crazy hard to, to deal with by our opponents, but Jimena, just her drive, um, her love for the game. I mean, I, I, I absolutely have to pull her off the field um, after <laughs> training sessions. And I'm like, listen, you know, we're monitoring the load you have and what you're doing in your work rate. And, you know, and it's amazing what you do, but we need you to have as much as much left for uh, for the match. You know, in three days as as we possibly can. So it's kind of a it, it's a funny thing. I remember a buddy of mine is the uh, is a goalkeeper coach for uh, for Manchester United, and he used to be with the academy, and would talk about how when um, Beckham and those guys were there, that that Beckham would would get in trouble because he would stay out all the time working on set pieces and bending ball and all, all the things <laughs> that make him great. And he finally had to find a, a side field that Sir Alex couldn't see him on from, from the main building. And that's, that's where he would go to get his extra time in. And Jimenez is exactly the same way. I mean, she, she's the left left footed version of it, but uh, she's always thinking of new things. And she's, she's the one right now that is driving the train um, with our players. She's our captain. And she's the one who's, you know, motivating and and uh, driving players and getting the challenges. And, you know, all of her sentences with the team is, hello, friends. And then <laughs> she goes on from there. She, she really, I can't say enough great things about her. But really, she's just absolutely love her. Well, and then we have um, another Aggie coming back to Texas, and that's Shea Groom. Um, Dash traded away two players uh, to the rain and got Shea Groom um, along with Megan Oyster. Now, of course, Shea's not from Texas, but, you know, she was at College Station for four years. Talk about finally having an Aggie on the Dash roster on the as a paid player. Obviously, Allie Bailey was uh, uh, an amateur player for the Dash back in the day, but finally an Aggie on on the Houston roster. I know. I've said I've, I've said to James for a long time ago. Um, you know, if you were to add, we've got 
player there, 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 there that, that might be able to help you. I go, as soon as you do this, you might actually see, you know, your attendance double as, as soon as you get A&M <laughs> players, you know, on your roster. And, uh, so he, uh, and, and he's, and I, 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 I love James. I think he's great. I think he's done a great job with a, a really difficult hand that he was dealt when he came into the team last year with having no allocated national team players and, and kind of, and, you know, a limited draft and everything else, especially this year, a limited draft. And I think he's cobbled together, I mean, a really good roster. I mean, bringing Megan Oyster in that help that really is going to help the back line. Shea is going to be a, a great fit. And, uh, you know, I know for her, she's really excited. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be wanted. And I know that the dash really, really, really wanted her to be here. So that type of, that type of welcome to her is just going to ignite what I, I think fans are, are going to love and seeing her because she is, you know, she's not, she's not a giant um, physically, but she's a giant of a player and she really um, is fun to watch. She plays with her heart on her sleeve and uh, I mean, she, she puts it all in for, for her team. So I, I know that Dash fans are, are going to just love seeing her out there and, and what she's going to be able to do. Well, and she was part of that that pretty big class coming out of A&M after um, the 2014 College Cup. Um, you know, biggest group of Aggies drafted at one time in New Roussel, you know, and that was, that was five years ago. So I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, how has the longevity of NWSL affected women's college soccer, right? We, we've never had a league last more than three years. Now this one, sometime this summer, will start its eighth. So, you know, have you seen a difference in recruiting, uh, tactics, uh, players planning to finish in three and a half years? How, how have you seen the longevity of this league affect what you do? Well, I think that I think whenever there's been a pro league in the United States, it's helped out uh, the top college programs um, because it gives our players a tangible goal that they're trying to get to beyond graduation and, and beyond you know what what they're able to do in college, and it's that carrot that kind of has, has stayed out there. You know, in the times when there was no, in the times in between the leagues, you know, it was just a national team. And so, you know, as the national team has aged over the years, um, it's become that much more difficult for a college-age kid to uh, to make any kind of impact into that roster. But getting into an NWSL roster, especially now that it's a, a larger roster, and, and it, it just makes it to where it's a, it really is an attainable goal for the very best college players. And and there's still a lot of college players that are going overseas, you know, to various leagues i've got girls playing in uh, several countries in in europe right now but but the nwsl stability has been i think one of the best things for just the general stability of the game at the highest level here and i mean usa are are world champions and i think i think that the nwsl has a a huge part in that uh, whether it's the development of people like crystal dunn or or any anyone who has has flourished in the league and then made the step to represent the United States has been great. Well, it's the same thing with us having those types, having the opportunity to go and play with those teams has helped our players to stay on, on the right track to, to reaching their potential. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's crazy to think, you know, that it was five years ago that, that, that class, you know, of yours got drafted and it's been a, complete cycle and then some since then and you know the the league's still here it's you know just such a huge difference maker and i think you know we won't even really see uh you know the big changes for another cycle or two but you know just that that dependency that you know a player who's in 10th grade now you know who's trying to start that college search like she's got a pretty good certainty that there's going to be something waiting for her when she's done. I hope so. And, you know, you hope that, you know, new markets will, you know, indeed flourish. You hear about, you know, Louisville coming in. You always hear rumors of, of something starting in LA and, 
you know, it would, frankly, I mean, in a perfect world, it would, it would be great if somehow, you know, more of the MLS clubs like the Dynamo would invest in women and, you know, and make that push. FC Dallas would be great. Austin, when they come in, wouldn't that be great if we had three NWSL teams in Texas? But, you know, all of that is, I think, is becomes more possible because of the stability that the league has had and and the fact that there are some really good owners. And now with even with uh, what's going on with the rain, you know, maybe that's a, a another way of infusing money and professionalism into the league. Well, Coach, thanks so much for taking the time to give us an update on what's it like for a college soccer coach right now. And hopefully we will get everybody back on the field sooner rather than later. I agree. I, uh, I'm looking for, I, I appreciate the call and, you know, having, having, you know, any conversations on football right now is fun, but, and with me, I have a little bit of time this summer. I'm hoping to get down and, uh, get down to BBVA and, and see a lot of games and, and be a fan for, uh, even though I, I'm not going to wear orange, I'll still come <laughs> down and be a fan for, uh, for James and, and the, uh, and the dash. Cause I, I really believe in what they're doing. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four and I kind of have to say it's the same old same old because there's just not a lot happening as you guys are well aware so if you need something to mix up your day mix up your weekend check out my posts on keepernotes.com about the historic um soccer videos that have been soccer games that have been replayed other ones that are available on youtube for re-watching um other great woso nerd topics and speaking of historic Woso videos, I've asked for this before, but I want to keep asking for it. If you have any old USA, uh, WPS, or WSA games on video, or even NCAA College Cup, the older the better. If you have them on VHS, um, I will happily transfer them to DVD and digital for you if you just send me the VHS. Uh, you can email me keeper at keepernotes.com for details. I'm just trying to, you know, build more and more of a video archive out there. And uh, in case you haven't heard, the new USA jerseys are available, both home or away. These are the jerseys that the U.S. women wore in the She Believes Cup. And if you don't want to give your money to U.S. soccer, totally understand. If you want your money to go to a local business instead of U.S. soccer, then I highly recommend buying from a local soccer shop, whether it's your local soccer shop or any kind of city-based, family-owned soccer shop. Like the, fa- the the store I used to work for, Soccer for All, five locations in Houston, they have the jerseys available at SoccerForAll.com. Um, lots of great stores like that. you got Soccer 2000 in Chicago. You've got Global Soccer in Orlando, um, Soccer West in Seattle. Um, that way the money's going to uh, a local, independently owned store, not U.S. Soccer. However, keep in mind... If you want the FIFA patch on your jersey, the official FIFA Champions patch, the only way you can get one of those is getting the official one is to buy through the U.S. Soccer Shop, unless you want to take your chances on eBay. All right, last thing, my favorite plug, my plug for the NWSL Almanac published by Keeper Notes, uh, my 350-page labor of love comprehensive guide to the NWSL's first seven season. Features a complete player and coach registry, stats by season, all-time player and team records, lots of color photos, playoff match reports, so much more. Nowhere else does all this information exist in one place. And you can buy the print version. You can even add on the PDF version. So just go to keepernotes.com, click on Almanac. Um, And I am so close, really so close to being done with uh, Dash Only Almanac. And then I'm planning to do Almanacs for the other NWSL clubs one by one. Uh, And hey, the longer the quarantine goes, the longer we're stuck at home, uh, the more of these I'll be able to get finished. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Uh, big thanks to Roughneck Scarves, and also many thanks to 
IcarusFC.com. If you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas, then go to Icarus FC for completely custom kit for your youth club or Sunday league team. Um, They can help you design a kit at an affordable price. All right. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing this podcast with other uh, soccer friends. And thanks as always to Sean and also the beautiful game network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.